0: In the name of the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The wedding feast that we are attending this morning, along with Jesus and Mary and the disciples, is not exactly what would come to mind when Americans say the phrase, wedding reception. We are not talking about a one-hour drop-in at the Elks Club Hall with red velvet cake and a bowl of punch. Nor are we attending some sort of swanky, elaborate five-course dinner over at the Marriott at I-465 and Shadeland Avenue. In biblical times, wedding feasts ran often for a week or more following the actual ceremony, even leading up to and following the ceremony. we need to get ourselves in the mindset that we're at a long marathon event. And with kinfolk coming from far and near and with potable drinking water always in short supply in the desert, the families of the betrothed would have been stockpiling jars of decent table wine for months, maybe even years prior to such a ceremony. Running out of wine at a wedding feast is serious business. It is a crisis. It is a failure and a health hazard, not only to the bridal party, but also to the many guests of the host who are literally dependent upon the host for their health and their life. Running out of wine is more than a disappointment or maybe a social no-no. Instead, running out of wine is really a basic breakdown in the duties of a host. Something that would establish a host as either a disgraced or an honorable member of his or her society. And so for the bride and groom, not to mention their families, to run out of wine today is simply an unacceptable taboo. It is a failure of colossal sorts. It is a familial collapse, embarrassing them, isolating them, making them the buffoons and laughing stock of Cana for years to come. And so what is the wedding party to do? There is no Seventh Amendment or whatever the name of the place is down the corner. There is no 7-Eleven open all night. There are no spare bottles of wine in the cellar. And to ask the neighbors to borrow their wine? How embarrassing. This wedding party in the Gospel this morning is backed out of options. They are backed into a corner. Helpless, hopeless, hopeless headed for a lifetime of extreme embarrassment and estrangement, just as soon as the next guest comes forward for a refill. And so Mary's anxiety-filled whisper to Jesus this morning, they have no wine, is really the final option for hope. Mary is making a 911 call, an SOS. This is a panic-stricken moment, a last chance in this gospel story. They have no wine. Those words of Mary can really be translated this way. They have no future. Mary wants to fix this crisis for presumably her friend who is about to lose face, who is about to be relegated from insider to outsider status. The gospel this morning begs us to ask ourselves this question. What do we do when the wine runs out in our lives? What do we do when we find ourselves holding the proverbial empty jug of wine, the last jug, in our hands? What do we do when our spouse or our partner leaves us? What do we do when a loved one dies? What do we do when a senseless tragedy strikes us in the face? What do we do when we lose our job, when we face a serious illness? What do we do when we don't fit into society's version of normal whatever that means. I'm not talking about a bad hair day or a bad Monday at the office. I'm asking, what do we do when we encounter those moments in our lives when there is nothing left? When we are hopeless, when we are helpless, when we are headed for a lifetime of exclusion and estrangement? And to take this question beyond our own personal lives and maybe into our church life together, I'm mindful that the prognosticators, and number-crunchers, and experts are telling us that mainline traditions such as the Episcopal Church, our our wine is running out. That's what they're saying. And with declining attendance, and aging building, and rising costs, the so-called experts' predictions of an imminent day of reckoning echo those words of Mary that we hear in the Gospel this morning, they have no wine. And in the church, we are spooked by these predictions. And as a church, we often make decisions about our future based on an anxiety that something we have or something we love will be taken away from us, whether it is our buildings or our traditions or our positions of power. Translated into church ease, the phrase from the gospel this morning, they have no wine, might sound something like this. They are down to their last ten members or people aren't going back anymore, or that church is just barely hanging on, or maybe from the news headlines this week, they're in trouble with the Anglican Communion. What happens when we run out of wine in our church life? Now, don't panic. We have plenty of wine here at All Saints this morning, both literally and figuratively. Your your altar guild would never let you down. This morning, John is asking us to look beyond the wine, beyond the immediate characters, beyond the story at hand in the gospel, to see a metaphor depicting a classic human struggle between plenty, abundance, and nothing, scarcity. Between hope and desperation. Between faith and panic. John takes us to a moment in time where someone walks very close to the boundaries and edges of life living as one who is both accepted and yet one who is almost about to be outcast in the very same instant. And through this story John is holding up a mirror so that we can see that in our lives we also are this bride and this groom or we have been that bride and groom before in our lives. The wine has run out on us or maybe The wine is about to run out on us, or maybe the wine is running out on us. We know what it feels like to be in shortage or embarrassment or despair. Each of us knows the way that an unexpected change can pierce our lives, the kind of change we didn't anticipate, the kind of change we didn't want, the kind of change that we weren't expecting. So John is asking you and me this morning, What do we do when the wine in our lives runs out? Today, Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Jesus says to them, draw some out, take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, but you have kept the, the better wine for last. Not only does Jesus bring hope into a hopeless situation, but the new wine he creates is better than the old wine that they were drinking before. Note that the Son of God does not bring forth Franzia in a box or two-buck chuck. Jesus is bringing forth a vintage Cabernet Sauvignon. And take note, John tells us that the host of the wedding is not even aware that Jesus has performed this miracle. God not only has the capacity to address our crises and need, but God is often doing them, addressing them, before we even know they exist. In John's Gospel today, Jesus alone is the one who transforms, who renews, who recreates. Even the anxiety of the bridal party cannot make that recreation happen. We cannot fill the empty jars of wine in our lives with our own anxiety and hand-wringing. Instead, we must rely completely on Jesus, consciously or unconsciously, admittedly or unknowingly. As his followers, we believe that he is with us all the time, transforming, renewing, healing, restoring, working miracles in ways that we may never know. This doesn't discount the pains and the struggles that we have in our lives that are very real. But in some way, we know, we believe he is Emmanuel, God with us, turning our crises into joy our struggles into a new way of life, helping us to move from that mentality of scarcity into complete abundance. Now, this is not Pollyanna theology or Mary Sunshine speaking, for here's the real catch of the Gospel passage this morning. The new wine that Jesus is constantly creating in us is likely very different from the old wine. The wine that we've been expecting, Or maybe the wine that we're not expecting at all. And so we have to acquire a taste for this new wine. In the church planting world, Good Samaritan in Brownsburg, Jesus is refilling the Episcopal church, but he is doing so with new wine. It tastes very different from the old wine that you and I like and that we're used to. So Good Samaritan is a church without walls. We meet in places where we can be with and serve our neighbors. Our gatherings take, places, take place in, uh, in places where we can meet for cheap. So we meet in food pantries and alternative schools and homeless shelters and pubs and libraries, places where we can engage with and serve our community. Every time we gather, our signature item is that we serve our community in some sort of way. It's fascinating that the kind of people we're attracting to Good Samaritan are not interested in a church building at all. This baffles me. So let me tell you just a bit about my call. I felt called to plant a church from, uh, from childhood, really. Uh, when I was a child, I didn't want toys. Uh, I asked my parents to give me a file cabinet. And so I was constantly planning and creating uh, flow charts and organizational plans. I went to seminary in a time in which openly gay priests were not uh, really welcome to plant churches. The only two dioceses that during my time in seminary, I graduated in 2001, the only two dioceses that were uh, planting churches with any sort of vigor were the Diocese of Virginia and the Diocese of Texas, where openly gay clergy were not allowed to serve. And so I took uh, calls in congregations where I knew that I could take some of the wisdom and uh, beauty of church planting and apply it to congregations that were already in existence. Um, I worked with congregations that were struggling in New Jersey and South Carolina and came to the cathedral in, in order to help the cathedral redevelop its life and its ministry. But I still felt this call to plant a church. And so one day my partner and I were riding out in Brownsburg past the sign on the eight acres that the Diocese of Indianapolis owns that says, future site of the uh, Church of the Holy Spirit. The diocese had tried to plant a church in Brownsburg about 20 years ago, and it just didn't work, but they forgot to take down the sign. (laughs) Typical. So I, I texted Bruce Gray, the bishop's assistant, and I said, is there still a plan to plant a church out in Brownsburg? And he said, man, we keep meaning to take that sign down. And I said, Would you be willing to leave it up for just a little bit longer? Can I come talk to you? So I went to Bishop Cade and to Bruce, and I formulated a plan to plant this church without walls. And after a wonderful send-off from the cathedral where they really endorsed and uh, and got behind my mission, uh, I've been in the field in Brownsburg since last March. And we've grown from zero people last March up to a base of about 70 if everyone showed up all at once. And we plan to move next month from one worship gathering a month to three a month and we're working our way towards building a worshiping community that meets every sunday by the fall i met the first 70 people by setting up camp at starbucks in brownsburg you'd be amazed at the people you meet in starbucks i went out and met with community leaders i helped us establish a presence at local festivals and gatherings and so we've met These first 70, our goal is now to launch when we launch in August with about 140 people. And so this next wave of growth will come from our own 70 tapping into their networks, their contacts, their friends, inviting them to become part of this new community. And so now it's strange that my work kind of shifts from just being present and meeting people in the community to now empowering and equipping and cheerleading our folks to be evangelists in the best sense of the word. Mother Suzanne asked me to share just a couple of things that we might have learned in the field in Brownsburg that would be applicable to you, so I bring you three learnings. I've got an hour's worth of failings, which I could share at coffee hour, but here are the three most important learnings I would share. I've discovered that newcomers are terrified of church buildings if they've not been a part of a church community. They say that it is the equivalent of walking into someone's home uh, uninvited, with the front door closed and walking into the middle of a party in which you know no one. And so they're much more comfortable meeting us in public places than they are in our own buildings. They think our buildings are beautiful, but they're hesitant to come in for the first time. And so I wonder what would it be like for you to meet people in your neighborhood and then to bring them to your building. Along that same line, I've learned to get the clergy person out of the church building I've been ordained for about 15 years as a priest and I always thought that my job was to be present and busy in the office, doing bulletins, making calls, prepping for liturgies, and that is an important part of our job. But an equally important part of our job is to be present in the community. So at Starbucks I have a little sign that I place on my table that says, the priest is in. I'll treat you to a cup of coffee. Now granted, I get some interesting characters. But I've also met a lot of people who are really interested in the kind of open-minded, progressive Christian faith that we offer. And getting that clergy person out of the building and into the community is a gift that you can offer to your community. So expect that of Mother Suzanne. And then lastly, I would encourage you not to rely on your Episcopal brand we love the Episcopal Church, but I'm discovering that newcomers don't know what the Episcopal Church is. If we explain to them our values and what we stand for, they say, yeah, I'm with you on that. But if we just say the word Episcopal, they don't know. I want to thank you, All Saints, for your support of Good Samaritan. Your support of Good Samaritan comes through your gifts to the mission share of the diocese and through those gifts and ties that you give to the diocese. Uh, We're able to do our work of planning this new church in Brownsburg, and so we thank you. This morning, Jesus is with us in this wedding feast. He is with us in this community known as All Saints. And as he is performing miracles, even in Brownsburg, he is ready to perform the miraculous in our lives here today. Jesus is ready for us to taste new wine, just as we are tasting in Brownsburg. Jesus is ready for us here to taste new hope, new life. Jesus is ready to take our empty wine jars, the holes and the broken places of our own hearts, the hurts and anxieties that we have experienced, the changes and the chances of this life, all of our neediness, all of our brokenness, all of our vulnerable places. Jesus is willing to fill those places up with hope and with healing and with perfection and with renewal. But like the stewards in this morning's gospel, we must offer up empty jars to Jesus if we want them to be refilled. May we bring the empty jars of our lives. May we bring the empty jars of our Episcopal Church. May we bring the empty jars of the world with us to this altar this morning. And can we prepare ourselves for the new wine that Jesus creates, knowing that the new wine that we will taste here may not taste like the old wine, that the new church that we are creating in places like Brownsburg might not look or act like the old church, that our new lives from this day forward as new creations might not be like the lives that we had when we walked in the doors of All Saints this morning. When we eat and drink of the body and blood of Jesus, then Jesus will fill us over and over and over again until we are full to the brim of his grace and his love and his peace. That is the good news of the gospel. But the good news comes with a word of warning for the church and for us. The new wine of Christ will not be the same as the wine we were drinking before and neither will we. But if we are able to see past the crisis, past the anxiety, past that fear of change, then we will taste and see that the new wine we are to drink is better than the old wine from before. So the bridegroom invites us to come and to feast. Shall we eat? Shall we drink? Amen.